This is the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions that teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. This summer, we are studying Jeremiah and Lamentations. I'm Amber Vaden, your host, and today I'm joined by Bob Bunn. He was just with us two weeks ago, so we are glad to have him back. Bob is our editor over our leader guide, uh, quick source, and our leader pack, so he is a valuable part of our team. Bob, thank you for being with us today. Always a pleasure. We're glad to have you. Today we're looking at session seven. Uh, so we're look, we're discussing Jeremiah chapter 29, verses four through 14. In Jeremiah 29, verses four through seven, we see where Jeremiah delivered God's message to the exiles. He encouraged them to become established and contributing citizens in Babylon. God reminded them that he was the one who had deported them, and he directed them to build houses, plant gardens, marry, and pray for the Babylonians. God called them to seek the welfare of Babylon because the Israelites could only prosper as their captors prospered. In verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah called on the people to ignore the false prophets they had been seeking out for favorable prophecies. He emphasized that God did not send these false prophets. And then in verses 10 through 14, Jeremiah declared that God would restore the people of Israel after 70 years of living in exile. God had a plan for his people, and they could place their hope in him despite the wait. God promised to listen to their prayers once they sought him with all their hearts. They would return to the land from which they had been deported. Our overall summary statement for this lesson is that God's people must trust him in all circumstances. Certainly, this was a difficult circumstance for God's people, but he could still be trusted. Okay, let's jump into some questions. Bob, what is the historical context for this passage? I mean, if you want, you can go all the way back to 721 BC when the, when the, uh, when the, when the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. They were the big dogs on the block at the time, the bullies around. And so they, had, they pretty much overwhelmed most of the known world at that time, or at least the Middle East. And they were for a while until the Babylonians re- started to rebel against them. And so they, the, the Babylonians, along with some of their allies, had, had systematically uh, defeated the Assyrians over the course of several years. And so by 605 BC, they had pretty much wiped out the Assyrians. Uh, and the final battle was, was a place called Carchemish. And so they defeated the Assyrians. The Egyptians had come up to try to, uh, to help the Assyrians. They were also driven back to Egypt which basically Carchemish is north of Israel, um, kind of in, in mm-hmm. north, of even, even farther north of the Northern Kingdom. So that, if you think about it in terms of our modern day geography, it would probably be north of Syria. And so basically what that, what that did by wiping out the Assyrians and driving the Egyptians back to Africa, that left a, a huge gateway into the Middle East. And so, um, you know, their next stop was Jerusalem. And so, uh, which, because the Northern Kingdom had already fallen, 
they essentially gained that territory. And so the next obstacle for them was Jerusalem, was, Ju was Judah. And so in 605, they came, they, they ended up on Jerusalem's doorstep. The Israelites surrendered, became a vassal state. Several hundred, probably, maybe up to a thousand uh, of, the, of the Jewish folks who were living in Jerusalem at the time were taken into exile, including Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken into Babylon on this first deportation. And so that's where things stood in 605. A few years later, the king, Jehoiakim, decided to rebel again. And he, for some reason, he felt like maybe the Egyptians or maybe some other allies were strong enough to help him um, break free from the Babylonians. It didn't work out that way. The Babylonians came back. Uh, and right before they actually got to Israel, Jehoiakim died. His son, Jehoiachin, uh, surrendered when the, when the Babylonians came back in 597 BC. Uh, he was taken into exile this time, along with the prophet Ezekiel who would later have a fruitful ministry among the exiles in, uh, in Babylon. So there was two groups by this time. Later, they would come back again a third time. But when we think about it in 586 BC, they would just completely obliterate uh, Jerusalem. They would tear it on the wall. They would destroy the city. They would burn the temple, all that. But this, this letter, which is basically what chapter 29 is, it's a letter that Jeremiah wrote to these exiles, the ones who have been carried away in 605, the ones who have been carried away in 597. And he wrote this letter to them so that they could know that God was still in business, <laughs> that God was still around, that God was still active, that God was still working, to remind them, number one, that God was sovereign, that he had been the one who orchestrated this whole thing. He had been the one who had used the Babylonians as his instruments of, of punishment and to remember that he is faithful because one of the great things about chapter nine is that it's not just doom and gloom. A lot of Jeremiah is <laughs> a lot of Jeremiah yes. is about <laughs> gone too far. You've stepped over the line. I'm going to, you're going to go into exile. You're going to be just, uh, this has that, some of that, but it also has this, this, this message of hope that says, yes, God is sovereign. Mm -hmm. God has, created these consequences god has led you into babylon he's put you into exile but a day is coming when the light's going to shine again and 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 you're going to it's going to be okay but it's going to take a while and so that's that's sort of the context of 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 where we got to this point and what the context of his letter was that's a great that's a great way to unpack where we are here uh, and certainly, Jeremiah, as as with many of the of the minor prophets, it it can be difficult to read through <laughs> to read through the book because it's it's so repetitious of just turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. Like how many times do we need to hear that message? Well, how many times do I need to hear that message? A bunch. We need it a bunch. So um, it 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 can feel that way. But I really like how you said it. There is an underlying message of hope that we should not miss uh, and that they should not have missed, hopefully, and when they heard Jeremiah speak God's messages so that so that they understood this is not this is not the end. This is God working, but it's not the end. Yeah, I know I just threw a lot of numbers and dates and names and stuff at folks. Uh, that's that's a lot to take in. I understand. But we've 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 included two pack items 
that could really be helpful for this. One is pack item, uh, it's a poster, it's pack item four uh, on the fall of Jerusalem. It talks about all those deportations that I just mentioned. The other is the timeline, which is pack item seven, the, the timeline for, for the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations. And it goes even farther back. It goes all the way back to 721 and the fall of the Northern Kingdom. And so you can kind of see using that, that and it's a handout. So you can reproduce it, hand it out to your folks and they could have it with them as you went through this, this lesson. And they could kind of see where it all falls into that whole timeline that I just tried to lay out. Yeah, it's really helpful. I uh, I was looking at that just before we began this and thought, yeah, that's really helpful. <laughs> uh, okay, what are the implications of verse 7 for the church today? Okay, so verse 7 is where God basically says, settle in. It's going to be a while. Uh, build houses, plant gardens, um, find wives for your kids, find wives for their kids, or husbands and wives for their kids. Um, it's going to be 70 years. And so that's sort of where we are with that. Um, I think the first thing is we think about the current implications for it is, is to remember that we are not where those folks were. Um, we are not in exile. <laughs> By and large, we, I, I don't know who exactly all of our demographics are for, for those listeners. There may be some in other countries that, that struggle with some of this stuff. But by and large, I'm guessing that, that most of us are okay, that we live in a, land, in, in a country where there's some freedom, where there's some, um, where we can kind of do what we, what we want to do, say what we want to say, and we're not under the thumb of a, of a dictator. Um, and, and so that's, that's important to remember for us because moving toward the benefit or, or praying for the benefit of our communities and our nations should be a lot easier for us than it was for them. They were essentially, they had essentially been kidnapped <laughs> and taken far, far away from their homeland. Uh, we don't struggle with that background. That's not our story. And so as we think of it, yeah, we may, we may not like everything about our culture but we're better off than they were. So it should be easier for us to, to work for the blessings of our community, to work for the benefit of our community. So I think that's worth saying. Uh, exactly. So, yeah. so what, how do we do that? Well, uh, God told them to, first of all, to pray for the captives, their, their captors, the, captive, the captives to pray for the captors. And so um, they're, they're leaders, essentially. Pray for your leaders. And that's a great place to start. We can pray for our communities. We can pray for our leaders. In fact, the New Testament encourages us to do that as well. This is not just an Old Testament thing. You know, the, the New Testament looks at it from the perspective of God has placed leaders into position of authority. And so we need to honor that. Uh, the Old Testament perspective, at least in, in, this, in this context, is that God had used the Babylonians to do his will. And so they were his instruments. And so the, the, the Jews needed to realize that and needed to honor that. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to agree with our leaders. It doesn't mean that we're always going to like what they do or like what they say or, or you know, agree with all their policies and plans. And there's, there's room for that. There's room for, for dissent. And there's room for you know, letting our voice be heard and taking a stand in, the, in, those, in that arena. But I, it doesn't eliminate the responsibility that we have to pray for them. And to pray that God uses them for his honor and for his glory. Um, so that's one thing. Mm -hmm. The other is you, you can be involved in the community. Um, we, the, Jeremiah said, hey, you know, go ahead and plant your, 
plant your trees, plant your vineyards, plant your plant your gardens. Uh, you know, create a create a culture, create a society there, um, because you will be blessed as the Babylonians are blessed. And so he really encouraged them to to be to not exile themselves in exile, not to isolate themselves, but to but to be a part of who of their surroundings, uh, to be a part of the culture. Um, while still maintaining the standards that, that God had placed on them. And I think that's true for us as well. Uh, you know, Southern Baptists traditionally, historically, have been huge on the Great Commission. Uh, we are a Great Commission people. Uh, everything that we talk about points back to the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. and, and, great, and the part of the Great Commission, at least in Acts chapter 1, if you look at Acts 1-8, talks about our Jerusalem and our Judea, which is our local areas. It's our cities. It's our hometowns. It's our states. It's our regions. Um, we we have a responsibility to those areas just as much as we have a responsibility to going overseas and making a difference in, in other countries. We can make a difference. We can be salt and light here closer to home as well. And so that's, that's an implication for us. Um, you and I live in Middle Tennessee. Um, the city of Nashville is a huge melting pot. And I think mm -hmm. you live in Murfreesboro and I believe Murfreesboro is in the same situation. There are a lot of folks from a lot of different countries in middle Tennessee. And so the world has come to us in a lot of ways. And so we are reaching the world. We have the potential to reach the world by reaching our Jerusalem and our Judea. And so, you know, that's not an accident. God has placed that situation there for a reason. So um, we can make a difference in the world by making a difference at home. And I think that's an important principle for us as well that we can take from chapter set or from verse seven. Yeah, I think I think it could be on first reading a little bit of a why did he tell them to do that? So I think the way you explained it really helps get a bigger picture of what the Lord was calling them to do. Yeah, ironically, this was exactly where they needed to be at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as, if you're right where you need to be in God's perspective, you're actually in the right you're, place. Yeah. Even though it seems weird and seems out of uh, out of context or out of out of. Out of maybe place. not what you would have planned, but what exactly. the Lord does. How did Jeremiah's message contradict what the false prophets were saying at the time? And how did being specific about the seventy years of exile validate Jeremiah's role as a genuine prophet of God? Well, we don't know exactly what he's what they were saying in Babylon because <laughs> there's no record of that. Uh, we can kind of infer it from some of the things that Jeremiah warns them against. I think essentially they were, to use a modern day term, maybe prosperity theologians. Maybe they were they were just preaching good news and fluffy nice things, tickling the ears of the folks uh, in captivity. My guess is, and I don't like I say we don't know for sure, but I think I've read in, in, in different places that these prophets were probably saying that the exile was not going to last very long, mm -hmm. maybe a two or three years tops, and then they were going to be going back. Um, so, so Jeremiah's message of no, it's going to be seven decades uh, would have been a, a real splash of cold water on them. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, Amber. This was not a new problem. Uh, if you go back and look at other parts of Jeremiah, these kind of false prophets had crept in even before they were taken into exile. 
they were the ones saying, oh, hey, no, Babylon's never going to, they're never going to come to Jerusalem. God would never let that happen. He would never let Jerusalem be destroyed. He would never let the temple be destroyed. He would never let his people go into exile. That's not going to happen. God's going to, and Jeremiah the whole time was saying, going, no, that's not what God's saying. God says you're going into exile. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the exile itself should have validated Jeremiah's prophecy and his power and his position as a genuine prophet of God. But the 70 years would have added to that. It would have given him even more credibility, especially after a couple of years and, you know, the the realization that, hey, maybe these other guys were just blowing smoke. Uh, You know, it would have it would have really proven who who God was speaking for uh, during that time. How would you describe or explain the promise that's found in verse 14? There's actually there's actually as I read it, there's actually three promises. In, chapter, in verse 14, uh, there's God's promise that they would be found, that he would be found. God's promises that they would be gathered and God's promise that they would be uh, settled in the, new, in the land again. And so you have these three, these three promises that sort of are tied together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this idea of God being found. And, it, and really, that's in verse 13 is where he says, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be found if you seek for those who seek me, if they'll see me with all their heart. And that sets the tone for um, verse 14. But, you know, the implication is that, that God is not playing hide and seek with us. He's not he's not trying to be mysterious. He's not trying mm-hmm. to be uh, to be standoffish. He wants us to find him. He wants us uh, to, to know who he is, to have a relationship with him, to to know and be known. And but it, it, it's all tied to this idea of seeking him with all their heart. Uh, I read one commentator said that 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 phrase basically means that you want God more than you want anything else. Hmm. You know, we will get to know him when he is all there is to get to know, <laughs> when everything that we do is being filtered through him. Uh, and that's a really high bar uh, to, to set, to, to think, you know, I, I need to know God more than I need to know anything else. But it was actually... You know, Israel hadn't done that for years and for centuries, and that's why they ended up where they ended up. Um, thankfully, their past didn't define their future. God said, you, you're still going to come to a place where you're going to know me better than you know me right now. And when that happens, then you're going to be gathered together. And I'm not just going to gather those of you who are in Babylon. I'm going to gather all the people from all the nations that, that they've been scattered to, that they've been exiled in. And, and I'm going to bring my people back and I'm going to settle you mm-hmm. in this land that I promised you so long ago. And life is going to be so different for you than even it was before. Um, it's just incredible. And, you know, the blessing is this, uh, there, are, there are people who are hearing this message, who are reading this letter, who were never going to make it back to Israel. Exactly. They were never going to make it back to Judah. Uh, yeah. Either if they were going to be there 70 years even the youngest of them were going to be old people by the time uh, the Israelites were going to be returned. And so th- there was some, because there, I think it's, uh, I can't remember which, which book it's in, maybe in Ezra or Nehemiah or someplace where they actually rebuilt the temple and, and, or maybe it's in Psalms. I, I can't remember exactly, but there's a, there's a reference somewhere in the old Testament and leaders look it up. <laughs> it's there. I just can't remember what it is. Off the top of my head. But it talks about some of the older people who saw the new temple yeah. and they, and they mourned because uh, because it, it it wasn't close to the glory of the old mm-hmm. temple. So they there were those who did remember, 
But by and large, a lot of these people weren't going to make it back. They weren't going to be on the receiving end of these blessings that Jeremiah was talking about. But they still could have taken hope for the mm-hmm. future in, in that. Um, I think there's also this this now but not yet kind of mm-hmm. idea that we sometimes deal with with biblical prophecy. Some of this was was short term. You know, if you think in terms of 70 years being short term, prophetically speaking, it, it was going to happen fairly soon. But there's also this this reminder that God had an even bigger plan that this was just mm-hmm. a piece of. And so in that sense, it almost had a messianic uh, uh, undertone to it, that God was, again, affirming not only bringing the people back to Israel, but he was going to send the Messiah and bring them freedom of a different kind, uh, a stronger kind, a more lasting kind later on. Uh, and just it was just a, a, a subtle little reminder there that as bad as things are right now, boy, there's there's still some really great stuff coming. Um Yes. And, and you just need to hang on to that truth. Okay. So this passage includes a verse that is very well known, uh, but also perhaps misquoted, <laughs> misquoted. So let's take a look. Jeremiah 29, 11. What is a correct understanding of that verse? You mean the verse we put on a poster in the pack? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of our pack items. Pack item it's five. our memory it's, verse. It's a, it's, it is. It's a memory verse for this session, uh-huh. and it's on a big poster in the pack items. So, uh, yeah, it's an important verse, but you're right. It, it does kind of, uh, I'm not going to say get taken out of context, but it it does get misused and abused sometimes by folks. And it's well-meaning, I know, yeah. but we got to be careful. Um, I read a book. Oh, it wasn't a book. It was an essay in seminary, I think, is when I read it, um, by C.S. Lewis called uh, Fern Seeds and Elephants. Lewis is basically taking on biblical critics. Uh, he lived in a time where a lot of liberal critics were were trying to tear the Bible apart and tear it down and rebuild it in, in essentially their own image. And so he was, this was his way as a literary person, as a person who had had critics examine his work and and give their opinions about his his poetry and his his uh, his writings, uh, kind of telling the story from that perspective and he he basically says that that he is he is he had read criticisms of his book and i use criticisms in the literary sense essays about his essays where people were trying to expound on what he meant when he wrote something and he said a lot of times they couldn't have been any you know they were so far from the truth they he said they they had no idea what he was thinking but they were making up things based on their own opinions and their own context and their own needs. And, and the, the, the essay gets his title from the, the line where he says that they couldn't see a fern seed, much less an elephant 10 yards away. And so, um, you know, he says they missed, they couldn't get into the deep things because they couldn't see the obvious things or that were right in front of them. And that's sort of what happens with Jeremiah 29, 11. People read it and they want to see it from their perspective through their lens and that's it's well-meaning but it's dangerous because it completely changes what it could has the potential to completely change mm-hmm. what's being said we can never ignore what the original audience received and we don't want to miss it like i, I when i was thinking about this question i thought oh uh i, I 
I was one who, who years mm -hmm. ago would think about this verse and think, oh, the Lord is, is really saying this. And as I studied and kind of learned a little bit more, I mm -hmm. thought, okay, he's not exactly saying that, but he is still saying some valuable promises that we can hold on to. It teach, it has a lot to tell us about who God is, but maybe just differently from what maybe just a, a quick glance or a, or a cursory reading, we think it means one thing, but it's really a deep, deep promise that's so much, it, it's still so valuable and so rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah, theologians talk about the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Yeah. And exegesis means you start with the scripture and you start with the original audience and the original message and you figure out, okay, based on what God was saying to them, how does that apply to where I live now? Eisegesis is the other way around. Yeah. We start with our own context and we read it into the passage. And so there's, there's a distinction there. You're right. God has a lot to say to us. But first, we have to understand what he was saying to the original audience. Mm -hmm. And they were, in, as we mentioned, you know, as we talked about Jeremiah, we talked about how they were in a completely different context than we are. Yeah. They were in a completely different situation than we are. So these promises were his promises to them specifically. And then we realize that. And then we see, okay, well, what are some of the things I can think about? Well, number one, I can understand that God has a plan for me. Yes. That's a general principle that's going to apply across generations. And, and so I need to I need to embrace that. I need to embrace the fact that God's purpose, that plan that he has for me, is the best plan for my life. Yeah. Uh, I can't get any better than that. I have a friend who, who says that life with Jesus is better than life without Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, uh, his plan is always the best, even when it's hard. What we don't want to say, though, is that these, these promises of of uh, avoiding disaster and always having well-being prosperity prosperity that's not what the promise is here uh it was the promise for israel it was the promise for the jews that well-being and a lack of disaster was coming their way but for us it's not necessarily a promise for us because sometimes following god's plan even though it's the best plan can be really hard mm -hmm. jesus said that god's way is the narrow way it's hard. It's difficult. It's rough. And so if we go into this thinking, well, I'm always going to have well-being and I'm never going to have disaster, then when disaster or difficulty comes along, our faith gets shaken. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to understand, okay, it's an idea of perseverance. It's an idea of sticking to it. It's an idea of, of understanding that God's way is best, even if it's hard. Yes. And ultimately, yes. From an eternal perspective, yes, there's well-being. There's not going to be disaster in heaven. There's not going to be there's not going to be pain. There's not going to be suffering. There's not going to be, you know, when we get to that. But right now, it's more a matter of trusting God where we are and understanding that his way is always best. That's a really good way to explain just what that one verse really was about for them so that we can better understand it. Yeah, I wish that was the only verse that people took out of context sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but it's not. So always pay attention to context and what the original writer and the original audience had to say. Bob, thank you so much. I have enjoyed having you with us. This has been a really good discussion of Jeremiah 29. Uh, so I appreciate your time and your wisdom as we studied that today. Is there anything you would like to add or, or say before we go? No, I just love this passage. Uh, and I don't, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not, a lot of people have made 29-11 their life, life verse and whatever. Really, I'm, I'm drawn to the idea of praying for the 
for the blessings of your community. Mm-hmm. That whole idea mm-hmm. of, of playing, praying for the prosperity of those around you. Um, to me, that's, that's the, that's the key. That's the gist. That's the part that resonates with me the most. So, you know, don't, I would encourage leaders and as they get into this lesson, both studying and teaching, don't skip over that part. Don't just, the temptation would be to get past that, to get to the good stuff in 29, 11 through 14. But, you know, don't, don't do that. Challenge, challenge your folks, challenge yourself and challenge your folks to really dig into what it means uh, to, to, to work toward the benefit of your community, uh, because that's part of this equation as well. That's a good word. Thank you. From time to time in the podcast, we mentioned different resources in the Explore the Bible family, uh, things like the Leader Pack, the Adult Commentary, and Quick Source, to name a few. You can find out more about all the Explore the Bible resources on our website at goexplorethebible.com. We thank you for listening to us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we look at session eight. We will be discussing Jeremiah 31, verses 23 through 34, and our guest next week will be Mike Livingston.